done this in so long i know (laughs) it's been a very long time it has been some weeks you've been gone you abandoned me here i'm so sorry i'm not that sorry but i am so sorry sorry not sorry hello and welcome to pontifax i'm fry and i'm brie ranking all of the popes from peter to francis and this is episode 15 eleutherius oh okay well that that was a lot of letters. Well, and he, he has like four naming variations, so let's get them out of the way. He could be Eleutherius, Eleuther, Eleuter, Eleutheris, Eleutherius, and whatever else you could come up with. But we're just going to call him Eleutherius because that's what he's called on everything. So Can we just call him Al? Is that better? <laughs> L? Yeah, okay. We'll call him L. Sure. Why not? <laughs> We're getting real familiar with the popes right now, so why not? Now, before we get into this episode, I am going to point out to our listeners that I am very sick because I picked up a sinus infection and then flew for 10 hours. And I also live in BC, which currently has the worst air quality on the planet due to 500 wildfires. So, smoky voice and sinusy voice, I apologize. You're just not going to sound as chipper as people hate, apparently. Yeah, some guy hates my happy sounds well. Too bad for you. I'm not sorry at all about that. Let's do this. Let's jump right into Eleutherius, because it's time to do that. It's time to get that Pope. This Pope guy. All right, what do we know about this Pope man? Well, his father's name was Habundius. This is an episode of Great Names, Eleutherius, Habundius, you know? Now, how do you want to shorten that one down? Habby. <laughs> Habby? Al and Habs. Yeah. Well, El was born in Nicopolis in Epirus, which is modern-day Preveza in Greece. This would make him Greek. Or does it? We're going to start this week off with a little bit of controversy. Ooh. So all of the sources from the time period, the Liber Pontificalis and whatnot, all refer to Eleutherius as a Greek pontiff. But while I was doing my research for this, I stumbled across an article called Eleutherius, the First Albanian Pope, by someone called Ismet Harjulahu. I I apologize. (laughs) That's the best I can get for that. Ismet Harjulahu. In this article, The author refers to Eleutherius as the first predecessor of future Albanian popes with renowned personage who contributed to the spread of Christianity in Albania and sending missionaries across the European continent. Okay. The author says that despite the Greeks trying to claim Eleutherius as their own, he was in reality neither Greek nor Roman. Instead, he was an Illyrian. Are you confused yet? Yep, you lost me. Yeah, you'd think, like, if in, if you look at traditional history, Illyrians are Greeks, aren't they? Hmm, turns out, not so much. According to this article, and what I found out is a whole scholarly cultural debate, most of the areas that made up Illyria, generally along the Adriatic coast, are the modern areas of Albania, 
And so they claim the Illyrian legacy as Albanian continuity. But it's not just about geography, because as we know, culture is hard to root just in territory. So I started digging into this, and I dug way too deeply into this, and I even pulled in an expert consult for this. So for what I'm about to tell you, we need to thank Ryan Stitt from the History of Ancient Greece podcast, because he definitely helped me get the gist. Awesome. So here's an overview of the Albanian argument. In the ancient Greek world, the Illyrians were not Greek speakers, but it's possible that they could have been speaking the root Indo-European language that would eventually become Albanian. And the argument for this is bolstered by the names of places in Illyria that could have been developed from that language that follows more Albanian phonetic structure and that even the word Albania could have come from Albanal, which was an Illyrian tribe that is mentioned by Ptolemy in 150 AD. So this is how they're starting to tie this together. And in this way, Illyrians are already distinct from the ancient Greeks as we know them. And then Illyria experiences massive cultural upheavals because they get conquered by Philip II of Macedon, then they get conquered by the Romans in the Illyrian Wars. Then they're part of the Byzantine Empire and then the Ottoman Empire in the 15th century, which is why a large part of the Albanian region is Muslim today, which again separates them from Christian Greece. All of these changes and distinctions has led to, as Ryan put it, a weird stepbrother syndrome between Albania and Greece with, like, tension and competition, and they generally tend to claim really important people or positive developments or inventions as their own. So, like, yeah, that's definitely Greek. Yes, that's definitely Albanian. And then they kind of fight about it. Eleutherius gets wrapped up in this and has been claimed as Albanian. And so this is a very complicated issue, but for this episode, it's all we need. It's just kind of different that someone cares enough about this Pope to claim him as Albanian. So he's still at least a little bit relevant today. When was the article published? The article was published in 2008, so it's not that old. Yeah. So he's still a little bit relevant. Regardless of whether he was Greek or Illyrian or Albanian, we know at least one more thing about him thanks to Hegesippus the great lost historian that I will never not be sad about. Sure, it's something that we should take for granted, considering that he becomes Pope. But here it is. Are you ready for this one fact that we know about him? Yes. He was a deacon in the time of Pope Anicetus, and continued to be in the time of Pope Soter. Okay. Wow! I know. It's not exciting, but it definitely means that he was in the church sometime after 157, and he became Pope in 174, so we can at least say he had a religious career for about six years of Soter, plus up to the 11 years of Anicetus. So he's been in the church for a while. Did he, he probably didn't rise in the ranks? He was just like, surprise, you're a Pope now, or? Well, he might have been rising as they went. You know, we had Pope Anicetus, so he was probably relatively new to the church at that point. And then when Pope Soter became Pope, he was probably rising up and like, I'm a bishop now, but we don't know that. So he at least made himself notable enough to be referenced within their two papacies. So he's been there a while. Been hanging out. 
So he becomes Pope in 174, in the time of Marcus Aurelius, just slightly before Commodus is about to become the co-emperor. And if you know anything about Roman history, that will probably make you cringe. And if you don't know anything about Roman history, start listening to Totalis Rankium. It will help you a lot. Learn your Roman history. Yes, because Commodus is considered to be easily one of the worst emperors that Rome ever had. Like, really, really bad. Straight up bat crazy madness to set things off, to be tumultuous and unsettled for quite a while. It He does terrible things for the empire. Commodus is real bad for Rome. All right. But Commodus is not real bad for the Christians. He's so crazy and so busy messing everything up elsewhere that this is going to be a period of low persecution and almost tolerance. For the Christians in Rome. They're just flying under the radar right now. A little bit, yeah. We're we're gonna get into that a little bit more in our next episode. But for now, what it's worth noting is that it's relatively okay at this time to be a Christian in Rome. Mostly. Keyword in Rome, because this isn't necessarily true across the Roman Empire per se. What does Eleutherius do as Pope? First, he's going to deal with the Montanists, who are still hanging around in Rome, but are now also spreading across Gaul, taking root and building up followings. The Gaul of it. Yeah. <laughs> and they're building up these followings that are actually large enough that they're definitely of concern to the church that's there, particularly in Lugdunum, which is known today as Lyon in France. The reason we know this is because the concerns of the Church of Lyon are expressed to the Pope fairly clearly, but this is mainly because they're wrapped up in the whole other issue of Lyon being subject to some nasty Christian persecution at the time. Let's unpack this. Let's start with the actual persecutions. First, Lugdunum, or Lyon as we'll call it from this point forward, is a very important city in the Gallic province of the Roman Empire. It was founded in the time before Augustus, the first Roman emperor, and it's even the birthplace of an emperor, Claudius, who is my favorite. Christians had recently established themselves in the city in around the mid-2nd century where we are, under a bishop called Pothinus, who likely came from the Eastern Church rather than from Rome. There aren't a lot of good sources on Pothinus to say more about the foundation of the Christian presence, but considering that most of the Christians who are living in this area around the time of the persecution are Greek Christians, it makes sense that maybe he came from Eastern Orthodox. Being a Christian in Lyon was not a good time. The local Roman authorities in the area had it out for Christians and sought to suppress their influence or even their existence in any capacity. They were banned from most public spaces in the city, like the markets and the baths and the forums, and when they were caught out in public, they were at risk of harassment and assaults and robbery and things like that. Their homes were being robbed and damaged and vandalized, and we have those time-honored traditions of accusing people of Christian cannibalism and incest, you know, the Thistian banquets and the Oedipian intercourse, which you might remember is how Romans saw the Eucharist and the whole brothers and sisters in Christ thing. 
Yep. They use this as justifications for hurting Christians. In 177, this tense environment does what tense environments do and blows up into violence. Christians are rounded up and interrogated in the forum, and they're thrown into prison to await torture, and eventually 48 of them are executed in some pretty awful ways that include wild beasts and bulls in the theater, so not a good time. One of the people who dies in this is Bishop Pothinus, who was 90 years old when he died in prison. Oh, man. That is so old for this time period. He would have made it so far. He would have, and they were not very nice to him, so you know he was a super sturdy man to last that long. So the question then is, what does this have to do with the Montanists? Well... While the heads of the church in Leon are actually being imprisoned and tortured in this violent and awful persecution, they are writing to the Pope for help. But not only are they writing about their current plight of torture and doom and death, they are also writing about their concerns about what they call the Asiatic and Phrygian Brethren, a.k.a. They're concerned about the Montanists that are coming into Gaul. So if we're being persecuted and killed, these Montanists are coming in, so you need to do something. Which seems like a really odd thing to be super concerned about when you're locked up in prison and facing certain death. But if nothing else, this just tells us how strong the Montanist presence had gotten, and how much momentum it had. In these letters, the Bishop of Lyon and his deacons are expressing their concerns to Eleutherius, but they also ask the Pope to proceed with toleration and patience for the Montanists. We're dying over here. Be patient. Be nice to the Montanists. We need you to deal with their heresy, but considering we are also under violent Christian suppression... Maybe we need to focus on ecclesiastical unity, keeping the church stronger, keeping as many Christians together as possible. So maybe, like, knock them down, but keep them in the church. And this is a thing we need to not forget about this, even though we're calling them heretics. The Montanists were Christians. And frankly, they were Christians that demanded a higher standard of piety than the followers of the rest of the church. This is one reason that the church had been so inclined towards being, like, tolerant and patient with them, is because, aside from the whole prophetic revelation angle, they're mostly good Christians, and they're pushing Catholic doctrine and practice, and they're doing a really good job at it. They're making the other Christians look bad. But it is this prophecy bit that makes Montanism a threat to the church. Because by affirming this idea that prophetic revelation comes to anyone, Montanism is essentially advocating for a priesthood of the people, which cancels out the need for clergy and authority on spiritual matters. This is a threat to everything we've seen from Peter onwards, all of the stuff that the Liber Pontificalis is making clear that we know about our line of popes, all the holy orders, all the positions... None of that would be necessary if it was up to the Montanists. In the end, even though they are good Christians, the church will eventually choose to take a hard line on it. Eusebius and Tertullian, who, remember, was a Montanist, 
both tell us that Eleutherius initially leaned towards tolerating the Montanists for their good Christian values, and even wrote conciliatory letters towards them, but in the end, he had those letters recalled because he chose to reject Montanism in order to make clear that the church officially rejected new prophetic movements and to reinforce their own authority. Montanism gets rejected. Here's a letter. No, not a letter for you. You don't get this letter. Can you recall letters? How do you just cancel letters? Well, it, it seems to have been over a period of time that was long enough for the letters to get there. So I think they literally had to send another message and go, I need those back. They're no longer valid. We're cutting you off. Nowadays, what it would just be like you send send a, send an email and then you send another one that's like disregard previous message. Exactly like that. Now there's one other thing about the situation that we can't leave unsaid. The letters from the imprisoned Bishop Pontinus of Lyon, the ones that are going to Pope Eleutherius, were carried by none other than our old friend and good source, Saint Irenaeus. Oh, he's back. He's back. And we've cited him so many times, and now he's actually joining our story. He's got some letters. He's got some letters, and after Bishop Pothinus dies at the age of 90 in prison, Irenaeus will be chosen as his successor as the Bishop of Lyon. Now he's got a real role. And one day I'm hoping we can give him a special episode, or we could fit him into a discussion when we have a really, really short pope. But today is not that day. Right now, he's just the Pony Express. He is the Pony Express, but now he's also a bishop. So good on you. You moved up in the world. Now, before we jump away from the religious heretics, we should just point out that the Gnostics and the Marcionites are still hanging around in Rome. They've still been rejected by the church. They're still gaining followers and preaching their own versions of their religion. but. Eleutherius didn't like them, but he didn't do anything about it. Moving on. He just writes letters and then writes other letters that are like, nah. Contradictory letters. He's just writing so many letters. Bag of wind. He probably sent the, the Gnostics and the Marcionites a letter that just said, I don't like you. And then it's followed up with, do not disregard this letter. I am disappointed. Now, still kind of tangentially related to heresy, but... Going in a different direction, we have the Felician Catalog, a 6th century updated and revised version of the Liber Pontificalis, which tells us that Eleutherius issues a decree during his papacy that no kind of food should be despised or repudiated by Christians, provided it is sensible and edible because God created it. They're going on a the caveman diet. Yeah, pretty much. They're... they're Basically, what this is is a rejection of food laws that exist for other religions. Okay. And it, you could almost actually see it as a direct shot at some of those other religions. This could have been a shot at the Montanists because they're extremely, extremely pious. So they're out there preaching against consuming rich foods. And then you have the Gnostics who mostly had adopted vegetarian diets. And then we have, you know, the Jews with their kosher laws. So he's basically saying that Christians shouldn't snub their nose at any food. If it is edible and it's not going to kill you, 
you should eat it because God created it and nothing God creates for consumption is bad. This food is delicious. Eat it. God did it. Just eat the food. Eat the food. God made food. Eat it. This is a little bit interesting because this ordinance kind of serves as a rejection of James the Apostle's teaching in the Bible. He's going against the Bible. It's um Acts 15.29. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals. Well, I mean, are you going to walk up to, like, a gold statue and then take the goat off of it and eat it? Well, think about it. If you're in Leon right now and you're being suppressed across the empire and you can't go to the marketplace, you might just. Oh, you might you might literally steal that goat off of that heretical statue. Eat it. God made it. It was sacrificed to a pagan god, but it's still there. Eat it. It's still food. Yeah, rather than die for it. Like, if you're in those situations, you might just do exactly that. However... Like everything else that comes out of the Liber Pontificalis and all its other versions, including the Felician Catalog, it's also entirely possible that he said nothing like this at all, that this was retroactively added to him to give authority and weight to something that was happening much later on. In fact, this is exactly what scholars think happened, because in the 6th century, it would bolster a very similar ordination that was passed in about 500. Yeah, he probably didn't have anything to do with an ordinance like this. However, we're going to give it to him. Because we don't have a lot else to give to him, so. Now, are you ready to go on a bit of an adventure? Oh, yes. This has been quite dull. I'm sorry, I just tell the stories, I don't write them. Well, if our early and not reliable sources are to be believed which you shouldn't, during his papacy, Pope Eleutherius receives a letter. And this letter was written by a King Lucius from somewhere in Britain, who declared that Lucius wanted to become a Christian and convert his kingdom to Christianity. Ooh, missionaries. <laughs> yeah, sounds fake so far. Oh, it's, it's, it's so fake. This is so fake, but we're going to tell the story because it's the legend of Pope Eleutherius and his British missionaries. In response to the letter, Eleutherius sends two papal envoy missionaries, either called Fugiatus and Damien. Fugiatus. Fugiatus and Damien, or Fagin and Duvian, depending on the source. Whatever book you're reading, it's, it's one of the two there. So these men, Fugiatus and Damien... I have that strong bad song stuck in my head now. <laughs> You've broken me. I know it's Fahugu Gods, but Fahugu Godius. Oh, if somebody could make us a version of that, I would absolutely release it for everyone. So Fahugu Gods and Duvian or Damien, whatever we're going to call them, they're going to go and evangelize the Britons and bring the church to the people. And again, this is probably all fake. And why do we know that this is all fake? Well, first off, at this time in history, you wouldn't have a king in Britain. Because it was firmly established as a Roman province. And it was a little past the time where they would have made client kings out of tribal chieftains. 
You know, we're as far away from the time of Boudicca as we are from Peter because they died within a couple years of one another. So that's not happening. This is a Roman province. There's no King Lucius. Not good. Not setting the story up for success. Nope. And we should acknowledge that one of the reasons this story has persisted in Britain is thanks to Geoffrey of Monmouth, the famously pseudo-historical historian, using that in air quotes, from the 11th century, known for his very dramatic and not at all accurate accounts of British history. He tells the story of Lucius, the first British Christian king, with lots of made-up details and dramatic flair, and I will put a link to it in the show notes if you're so inclined to read it. If it's all totally fake, where did this story come from, and why does it exist? Like, where did Geoffrey of Monmouth pick up this absolute whopper of a fib? Well, there's a couple ideas. The first is that it's a complete forgery or retroactive edition. But why they would do this is not really agreed upon by scholars. One idea is that the edition was written by St. Prosper, who served the church as secretary to Pope Leo I, a.k.a. Leo the Great, in the earlier 400s as a way to bolster support for the missions of St. Germanus, who was a prolific religious presence in post-Roman Britain. This idea comes from the academics Haddon, Stubbs, and Wiccan. Cited. Now, Theodore Momsen thinks it might have been later in the 600s to support missions to Britain at the time for the Synod of Chester, which was dealing with conflicts between British bishops and St. Augustine, who came from Rome. Basically, in the 600s, the local Celtic Christians were not keen on submitting to an established church at Canterbury because they felt that they had a more ancient precedent of Christianity, and so they developed this story of Lucius the king who brought their religion over, instead of having to submit to Canterbury. We've been Christian this whole time. Yeah, how dare? We're not bowing to you. We got our own thing going on. Now, the other theory comes from Adolf van Harnick, who believes that the author of this segment from the Liver Pontificalis just f***ed up with a mistranslation. Oh, no. Oh, that poor monk. He theorizes that maybe the account was not for Britannio, as Britain would have been in Latin, but Britio, which would have referred to the Britio Edenesinorum, which is the citadel at Edessa in Mesopotamia. If this is the case, and it was Britio, not Britannio, then the Lucius in question would be Lucius alias Septimius Magus Abgar the Ninth, who is a verifiable Christian king. Nine other people have that long ass name. Well, it would be like Lucius Abgar the Ninth, I'm sure. <laughs> but he is actually a verifiable Christian king in Syria, so like this one has a, a lot more weight to it. This could have been this dude. They might have just really messed up the translation. I mean, it seems like it's only a couple of letters. Yeah. Let's not be down on that guy. I'm sure he was tired. It's what he does all day. You think he'd get it right? But we're not even finished yet, because this story also made it to Switzerland, about Lucius, a British convert of St. Timothy, who then went on his own missions to Gaul and Chur in Switzerland, 
where he was incredibly successful at preaching and converting and is now part of the legacy of the Swiss Church. So this legendary Swiss missionary is sometimes claimed to be that British king Lucius who wrote to the Pope. So maybe he wasn't a king at all. He was just a convert, and maybe he went over to Switzerland. He kind of bigged himself up. He could have been saying, I'm a king. They wouldn't know. They just want their hot chocolate and to be left alone. And Christianity, apparently. So Hot Christianity and hot chocolate. That sounds like a good mix for, for missionary work. Try that plug. Come on. We got some missionaries listening. Maybe that's what you need. Are you serving the hot chocolate? Either way, Eleutherius was supporting missions to Britain, or he wasn't. Kind of like he might have been supporting missions to Albania, or he wasn't. We don't know. Maybe. Maybe not. It's a thing. And this is what we know about his papacy, and that's it. Oh. And then he died. Yep. He died on May 24th of 189, quote, martyred in the true faith by idolaters in Rome. We don't know more about that or how or why. I mean, this is supposed to be a relatively good time to be a Christian there. He's included in the Roman martyrology, but he has been removed after Vatican II based on there being no evidence for his martyrdom. So, surprise, surprise, maybe it didn't happen at all. He was buried on Vatican Hill, going back to the classics instead of the new cemetery, but it's said that later, his body was moved to the Church of San Giovanni della Pigna. And then in 1591, he would be moved again to Santa Susanna, along with St. Genesius, by Pope Sixtus V's sister, Camilla Peretti. Stop moving bodies, you guys. Keep the bodies where they go. Well, you know, it's if, you, if you're redoing a church, which is what Camilla is doing. She actually is renovating the ancient Santa Susanna church and giving it a new chapel and a new convent. So she's having a pope move to it to give it the prestige. This is how we get pope bones in the trash. This is exactly how we get pope bones in the trash. Camilla, by the way, Camilla Peretti, was an extremely influential noblewoman in the time of her brother's papacy. And she was responsible not only for, like, renovating and expanding this church, but she would be a part of huge other builds across Rome, including starting the Sistine plan for the chapel. So she's super cool, and when we get to Sixtus V, we might have to spend some more time on her. Yes. She had a much bigger influence on her brother than she's historically credited with, and that's cool, so we'll talk about her. But that's it. He's in. He's still in Santa Susanna to this day. So that's where he is. He's dead. We've gone through his papacy. And now it's time to rate him. That's not a lot to rate on. I know, right? Papatum infallium. So he had three ordinations, 12 priests, 8 deacons, and 15 bishops. And he wrote a bunch of letters. He may or may not have issued the whole thing about not scoffing away from food which i think that's a good one because the whole dietary restriction thing is not very practical at this point in history if you're a very wealthy christian living in a very comfortable environment sure limit your diet however you want but if you're a starving christian peasant or you're in a place of oppression this one's really going to help you out so this is going to have a direct impact on the christians at the time just not all of them you gotta give him, I think, a couple points for that. He's 
not powerful enough to really intervene in the persecutions in Leon. But I don't know if we can hold that against him because so far none of the popes have been. So many of them get caught up in their own martyrdom that, you know, they don't have enough power to stop that kind of thing yet. Yeah. What do you want to give him for, for Papatum and Valium? Dude, I'm going to give him like a one. A one? Okay. He's not doing it for me. I'm going to give him a three because I'm giving him a point for the diet. Because that's pretty practical. I'm going to give him a point for the... No, I'm going to give him two points for the whole taking a stand against the Montanists. Because I think that you've got to finally like figure out what this church is going to be about. And even though they're a good Christians, it's, it's a pretty strong stance from this point forward that there are no more prophets. And the church will come up against this time and time and time again. And they will be very clear that there are no more prophets. So I'm going to give him, yeah, I'll give him a three for that. So in the end, he'll end up with a four for Peptum Infallium. Fructus Prohibitum? Well, he recalled the letters from the Montanists. I mean, that's barely. It just seems like kind of a dick move. A little, but I mean. It's all I got. I gotta fill this category with something until we get to the scandalicious guys. You know, I'm putting it out there. Do you want to give him a half point? No, I'm going to give him a, a goose egg. All right. I think that's fair. But I tried. I tried to put something in. Secular rye and pactum. If we give him credit for evangelizing Britain, this is huge. Like, that's a massive, massive impact on the world because Britain as a Christian empire will eventually bring Christianity to a huge part of the world. There's that, but we would then have to believe that he actually got a letter from King Lucius of Britain. But I'm definitely going to give him at least one point for being relevant to the Albanian identity, still to this day, because people are writing articles about him. Someone cares enough. Yeah, yeah. So do you want to give him something for that, or? Um, I'll give him, like, a point. Okay. Do you want to give him any points for Britain? No. Maybe if it was, it was not Britain, the other one, we could give him, like, a point for the not Britain. All right, we'll split the point between us, I think. We'll give him a three. Half point each for, for the potential Christian king of Syria. Yeah. And then one point each for Albania, so he'll get a three for Secularis Impactum. Fossium Sanctus. Are you ready to see this man's face? Yeah, I gotta put Discord front and center. I know. That's always the most inconvenient part. I have three images to show you. We're going to rate here on our traditional one, so here you go. Okay. It's a man. That is a man. He's got a pretty strong nose. He does. Not quite Adrian Brody, but close. This is also the first time that we're shown in the profile facing that way. Yeah. Usually they're going the other way, so I kind of like it. It's different. They gave him a really strong highlight on his brow bone and his cheekbone. Mm-hmm. So, you know, props to his makeup artist. <laughs> yeah, props to the contouring. I don't know. It's, it's decent. It's not quite a bunny poof. He looks not quite as mad. He Actually, this one has a little bit more texture. I mean, if you look at one of... 
we just at the time that we're recording this we just posted the episode for um pious and if you look at pious's he he looks very almost flat and cartoonish yeah whereas eleutherius definitely has some texture to him oh yeah someone spent some time painting this i don't know what do you want to give him well okay he's completely proportional he is not bad looking there's nothing that makes me go uh oh there are going to be some poems where you're gonna go <laughs> yeah right no he's i think it's decent he's doing all right for himself yeah he's he's an old man but like george clooney's also an old man so does he get to be compared to george clooney i think that's the highest compliment he's ever been paid i don't find george clooney attractive in the least Neither do I, but I mean, being compared to a famous man. Yes. Because uh, he is not a famous man. <laughs> no, he's not. I'll give him like a, I can give him like a five. He's not. It's a decent run-of-the-mill score. I think that's fair. I'm going to go, yeah, I'll give him a five too. I think that's that's a really good middle of the road. And that gives him a score of 2.5 for Facium Sanctus. That's the highest face score we've had in a long time. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, our our last Pope was a 2. The Pope before that was a 1.5. And then it was a very long time ago for Alexander that we gave a pretty high score. We really liked his sandals. He was so stylish. He was so stylish. Well, you're not going to show me the other photos? Oh, yes, the other photos. I forgot. Okay, here we go. Here's photo number two for you. <laughs> What's happening? I did not expect a strong reaction to this photo. <laughs> I, I, okay. So he's got the circular friends in the corner, but... He does. <laughs> it looks like a flying vagina. <laughs> well, that is a type of circular friend. <laughs> it sure is. I'm really concerned now with the little hat above it. <laughs> Help someone find the clit. <laughs> oh, no. Beyond that, um, he's got a really large tonsure. His head is very, very bald on top. It's almost like he's wearing a, a knit cap. Yep, that's the biggest tonsure I've ever seen. It is a thing. And apparently that might have been distinctive for him in his younger years because here's the last one and it's a little bit unique. What is up with this hair? Uh, well, you know, they, they do the whole tonsure thing so that they're bearing their, themselves to God from above. So, yeah, he's really doing it. He's really go going for it. Cause it looks like he would have a nice thick head of hair otherwise. It does. It really does. You know, maybe that's why it just keeps getting bigger cause he has to redo it all the time. He's just taking a little bit more every time. Now this is a straight on face shot. His, you can see the shadow on his nose on the one side, so it must be pretty large. Not quite Adrian Brody, but close. Yeah, very thin, though, in the front. Tempus Pontificus. Do you have any guesses for how long he would be Pope for? Uh, let's give him six years. 174 to 189? 15 years. Jesus. So he gets a score of 3.75 for Tempus Pontificus, if you can believe it. For, like, nothing, for what, 15 years and then nothing to show for it. Yep, that's a thing, so. I am disappointed. 
Yeah, it makes it it makes the lack of information a little bit sadder, so. Alright, everybody, it's the canon bonus round! Do, 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 do. Yes, he's a saint. Surprise! I know, right? His day is May 26th, the patron saint bit here, okay? Mm-hmm. I would generally say that in the research, he has not come up as a patron saint of anything. However, on a page found for the Benedictine monk, Eleutherius Winnens, who took his name, it says that Eleutherius is the patron saint of freedom. And this is why he was named this. But before we jump on that and go, yay, official patron saint, this is the only place that actually says that. And this is likely a confusion because the word Eleutheria is the Greek word for freedom. It's probably been convoluted from there. Now, there is also another Saint Eleutherius with a feast day on September 6th, but this is an abbot in the 6th century, not the same guy. There are two Saint Eleutheriuses here. One is Pope Saint Eleutherius, and one is just Saint Eleutherius. Not a patron saint of anything. Oh no, and I've got nothing to go on. Well, do you want to make him the patron saint of recalling emails? Hmm. <laughs> huh. Yeah, patron saint of strongly worded and then regrettable letters. That's fitting. All right. Not freedom. Strongly worded and regrettable letters. So, I think that works for him. Let's tabulate him up and see what his final score is. Eleutherius' final score is 14.25. Teens Club. He's in the Teens Club. He's kind of near the bottom of the Teens Club, but hey, he's still there, so not bad. Middling of the road. He is getting all of his points through having been a Pope for 15 years, so. Cheater. So now we must ask is he pizzazzy enough? No. Is he popey? No. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Not even going to get there. No papal bull for you. <laughs> no papal bull. Get it out. Yep, that's that's fair. And that brings us to our thank yous. And we have some pretty, pretty cool thank yous to make today. So, first of all, at the time of recording, we just... Re I, was, I was in Europe for three weeks, so... You were so, so far away from me. Yes, yes, I was. And while I was gone... Our episode was released on CrossFeed, all to the listeners of the History of Ancient Greece podcast. So thank you very much, Ryan, for that. That was super, super cool. That brought a lot of listeners our way. So if, if you are listening now and that's how you found us, thank you for joining us. That was super cool. We Round of applause. Yeah, that day we blew our summer goal of downloads right out of the water by almost half again. Like, it was insane. So that was awesome. Thank you for the support. That is really, really cool. We need to thank Flashpoint History and Knit and Sill for putting us in his YouTube video on the First Crusades. He recommended us at the end of the video, and that was awesome. Thank you for that. 
Uh, we got to thank the Why Is That podcast for recommending us again today and telling people to come and subscribe and download us. That was awesome. Footnoting History was just in Boston, and they saw a really cool statue of Pope Peter. So they sent us a photo of that and said they were thinking of us. Thank you for thinking of us. And to Sam from the History of Witchcraft, who put us on his article list of high-quality history podcasts. We were among giants on that list, seriously. For sure. We were in very, very good company, and we are very, very honored. We are the baby podcast of that list, and that's awesome. So thank you very much for that. Yeah, he put it on Reddit, and then it got cross-posted to the Dan Carlin subreddit, so... We're getting out there, and that's really cool. Thanks again to Totalis Rankium for doing some art for us. If you played along with Fry's half face game for, what was it, Hygienus? It might have been. Rob put that together in a photo for us, and when he sent it to me, I was at the tombs of St. Calixtus in Rome, just about to go down into the actual tombs, and I got that, and I was laughing out loud, and everyone was looking at me and wondering what was going on, and I'm like, this this is too good. So, thank you, Rob. You're awesome. And again, thank you to Rex Factor for being our inspiration. As always, we do not want to leave them out. And if you're listening, thank you to you. Holy cow, we are three months old as a podcast. We are still infants, and... This has just been the coolest thing ever, so how awesome is that? It's been like a wild ride so far here. It certainly has. And it's awesome. Like we're it just encourages us to continue. So we're not going to give up at Pope fifteen, don't worry. That would be the saddest. <laughs> fifteen popes out of two hundred and sixty six. That would be such a failure rate. That would be an F. That would be such an F. That would be a DNC. Did not even complete enough to fail. And now it is time for our plenary indulgences. This is the first round of Patreon supporters. This is so exciting. So if you have signed up at the, well, any level, actually, on our Patreon, what we're doing is, as part of our thank you, we are offering you a plenary indulgence to ease your soul of your temporal punishments. And we have a couple people who are due for their indulgence. So the first person I want to thank and absolve is the voice you're going to hear at the end of this section. He was our first patron. He's my friend and he's done our wonderful priestly voice that we need when we need it. So thank you, David Sheely. And we need to thank then Trisha Cohan, Peter Harrigan, Courtney Smotherman, Sarah Traum, Neil Tarrant, Amy Snodder, Kyle Much, Carl Morris, Brian Byrne, Harm Pomp, David Whitley, Krista D. Ball, and Richard Grooms. Thank you all for supporting us, and you are absolved. Ego te absolvo. And holy cow, we were so not expecting so many of you, so thank you guys. That is super, super cool. So we have hit our third goal, which is going to allow us to make this show self-sustaining. It's going to allow us to buy all the books I need for research. And it's going to help us compensate our wonderful artist who helped bring some of these wonderful, wonderful visuals to your eye holes. 
You can find us on Twitter and Facebook at PontifexPod. You can also find us on all major podcatching platforms, including Spotify. Our email is pontifexpod at gmail.com. Remember, on iTunes, it's great if you rate and review us. Five stars! <laughs> it helps us uh, get the word out that we exist and helps other people find us. Mm-hmm. So with that, we say thank you for listening and goodbye. Bye! Bye! Thank mm-hmm. you.